Thank you very much um, for joining me today on the Snow Magazine podcast. My guests today are uh, Josh Ferguson and Alec Tyra, who are attorneys with the uh, law firm of Freeman, Mathis, and Gary. And many of you know Josh from the magazine, from our many events. Josh is the uh, legal counsel to the ASCA and a frequent contributor and participant in um, a lot of the things we do here in educating contractors on on the legal issues pertaining to snow and ice management. But uh, this is Alec's first time. Um, Alec um, kind of co-authored with Josh a really interesting article in the May issue that examines some of the legal ramifications that you may need to be aware of as municipalities and state and even the federal government takes a look at the use of salt in uh, winter snow and ice management. Uh, right now, a lot of that is being looked at kind of on a macro level on the state and federal level as it pertains to Department of Transportation and municipal use. But we all know that the commercial side of the business is pretty big as well, and it won't be long before there could be some collateral legal damage there as well. So we want to make sure as a community, we're out ahead of this. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Alec, I want to start with you. This has been brewing for a little while now. There have been some reports. I think the first one may have been out of Minnesota, uh, which is the land of a thousand lakes in itself. And, and, and it was looking at the impact of winter salt use and the salinization of freshwater bodies. It's caused quite an uproar. Now, since the, that initial report, we've seen things come out in other states throughout the snow belt, um, from New York uh, into um, up into the Pacific Northwest and even into Canada. Um, but um, kind of wanted to get your, how did you get involved in following this issue? Well, I started following this issue back when I was really an under, uh, undergrad and I was doing environmental chemistry research. We were doing a lot of aqueous geochemistry and the effects of salinization on fish populations in California is also a, a really big deal. Uh, for instance, the San Joaquin River runs dry due to damming mm -hmm. and they pump delta water to kind of artificially recreate the flow. But the delta water is much saltier than fresh Sierra snowmelt. And it causes a lot of problems for uh, the salmon population. San Joaquin used to have a lot of salmon. That's not the case anymore. So I really started following salinization issues from that perspective for a, a few years now. Just recently got into it on the legal, legal side uh, for contractors. It's interesting that you mentioned Minnesota as an issue for looking at salinization issues. Minnesota is also one of the first states to really look at per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, uh, as a, an environmental contaminant. And so the kind of two prongs of the same issue are really coming out of Minnesota first and is spreading rather rapidly throughout the country. Well, Alec, I wanted you to, I'm not sure if you knew this, but there's, um, I would say that a safe estimate is that between 67 to 70% of my audience um, does landscape work on the uh, during the summer months and um you know everything from cutting grass to lawn care to um you know building out out outdoor oases and um anybody who's been in this industry for a while remembers that about a decade or so ago on the green side of this industry um that there was a similar 
um, discussion, but as it pertained to fertilizer and pesticide infiltration into fresh water. Uh, and, and a lot of those, myself, I remember this and, and anyone else who was in the industry, it, a lot of this rings similar to when that was an issue. And it was the overuse of pesticides and fertilizers and it getting into surrounding, you know, pristine habitats and whatnot. From your experience, are you seeing um, those are kind of some cues that are being taken by those who are advocating for, um, for you know, pretty substantial change when it comes to the use of uh, rock salt and in, in winter snow management? I would agree that a lot of the issues present in fertilizer runoff are also present in salt runoff. It, again, kind of almost two sides of the same issue. Uh, from a legal perspective, a lot of the liability complexities that are for fertilizers are also present in, in rock salt runoff. You know, the Clean Water Act regulates discharges from point sources. A lot of your uh, runoff you're getting here are not from point sources. And so there is a, a broad general discussion of regulating diffuse runoff sources from agriculture, from fertilizer use in other landscaping contexts, and from the use of rock salt that may contain uh, other environmental pollutants that you see in snow and ice management. Um, Josh, you work very closely with the contractor community as it relates to slip and fall mitigation. I, I know a lot of contractors who are hearing about this issue and have been either following it in the news or hearing about this you know, through the podcast or through the pages of the magazine are thinking to themselves, well, how in the heck am I going to do my job and alleviate slip and fall risk if I can't use rock salt, or if I can't use other de-icing materials because of the fear of, of runoff issues. And I know that on um, the much larger than the state and the federal level too, I mean, there's without a doubt, the use of rock salt has helped uh, mitigate car accidents, winter car accidents by keeping roads clear and, and, um, and not and to alleviate ice buildup. Are, are we, you know, tying our hands behind our backs and, you know, what, what can contractors do to begin to get ahead of this from a, um, a liability standpoint? Sure. Well, let's take the, the first standpoint that I, we have talked about for years, that snow and ice management contractors are risk managers. And this just adds another layer to that aspect of things. So uh, we've certainly seen uh, state and local agencies in some jurisdictions already seek to ban or limit the application of certain ice melt materials. Uh, we'll talk about this a little further in, in our upcoming article uh, that, we're, that we're gonna be posting. But for example, in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, there is the uh, limited, uh, the amount of de-icer that can be applied. We know there's been ongoing discussions about uh, if pl uh, places and people are applying a brine mixture, what the salinity can be of that brine mixture. And so, yeah, that, that certainly poses some concerns for me that if uh, a brine mixture doesn't have the right amount of uh, salt or de-ice agent, it's not going to do the trick. And in fact, it's going to create a hazardous situation. Or if you can't apply um, the a right amount of material to a site uh, that has a lot of temperature fluctuation with a lot of concern on thaw refreeze, again, that could also pose an issue relative to slip and fall claims. So uh, it's it's a it's an area for concern for general uh, for generally here for sure. Uh, we're going to have to track what you're allowed to do and how that could uh, potentially 
expose the liability of the property owner, property manager, and, and set of contractors? And then what can we do to protect ourselves, if anything, in our contract language uh, in case something like that uh, takes place uh, as a contractor to say, look, if we're not allowed to apply what we need to apply uh, by state or local agency, we're not going to be responsible for the resulting conditions. Mm-hmm. Alec, that, that's a great point. And I was wondering if you could tell us from your experience um, as it related to other um, uh, 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 other infiltrators that um, into freshwater, how were some of those issues resolved? Was it resolved by you know establishing different standards? Uh, was it resolved through uh, better education, better training? Um, how were some of the ways that these things may have gotten resolved in a happy medium so that we just didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak? Yeah, it's undeniable that the use of rock salt or any other kind of, you know, whether it's pesticides or other chemicals are highly useful and almost cornerstones for a lot of industries. And replacing those are either rather expensive or maybe even impossible. And a lot of this comes down to an aging water infrastructure problem that is present throughout most of the country. Our water treatment facilities aren't doing a good job of capturing these pollutants, whether it's uh, salt, uh, persistent environmental pollutants like PFAS, or even pharmaceuticals that come from sewage. And so a lot of what's being done that I see as being a way of mitigating all of this is just better water treatment facilities. Uh, that's obviously a cost that's more on the, on the government side, but it's really the most effective way I've seen in dealing with these kind of diffuse uh, pollutant issues. I'll throw this out to both of you and perhaps, you know, we get both perspectives, but how much is going to be um, responsibility is now going to be placed on the contractor to better educate clients and customers about these issues because customers are, are reading these same things either, you know, online or in the, in the news and they're hearing about that and they're beginning to have questions too. And they're beginning to have concerns about, you know, well, it's the guy I'm contracting with, are, are they using too much? And, and, and clients are always the ones, the first ones to complain that the, you know, contractors not using enough ice melt that it's, you know, not crunching under their feet, but you know, that's usually uh, a sign that you use too much. So how much, uh, you know, uh, Alec, from your, from your experience, how much education will need to go into this and, and, and making sure uh, everybody knows the facts about uh, this issue and Josh, um, you know, what additional types of documentation will contractors need to start keeping with, all their other, th- you know, with all the other things they, they have to record to help mitigate their slip and fall risk. From the education perspective, best way for a contractor to educate customer is just simply disclose the facts, whether that's attaching ordinance or legislative language uh, as a part of the contract. So they're aware of statutory requirements of what they can and cannot do, what the contractor can and cannot do. Uh, the other big issue that a contractor can do is, you know, a lot of these issues are cutting edge for uh, on the legal liability side. Mm-hmm. Liability is coming faster than 
the news cycle can keep up with it on a lot of these issues. So the contractor just needs to be upfront with the customer and explain, you know, you know, attaching the statutory language and explaining the, what is being actually applied. And that's really a, something a contractor can do with their supplier, you know, being aware of what the contractor is actually putting on the ground and then explaining that to the customer. And yeah, that's a, probably a difficult conversation, you know, if they're applying something that has a persistent environmental pollutant that the customer may only be generally aware of. That may be a concern to the uh, customer, but it, you know, there has to be a balance of disclosure and the actual work done. To follow that up with what Alex said, there's twofold. Uh, one, there's an opportunity there for the contractor. Um, you know, the contractors that are listening to this podcast that are actively involved in, uh, in the industry by, again, su- subscribing to publications like this or members of the, uh, of the ASCA, they're the ones that can get in front of this and use this as a marketing opportunity to advise what's happening in the industry and how they will uh, use this and how they will respond to it in order to best service the property. Um, and again, it's a way to pitch yourself out there. Um, from a liability concern aspect of it, uh, again, it's, it's going to go back to that ultimate contract language. The property owner, um, especially as some of the laws that are beginning to be enacted, certainly uh, CERCLA and, and RICRA, um, pose a, a liability to not only the property owner, property manager, but the contractors that are involved. The contractors need to make sure the contract language is clear, that if they're limited in servicing uh, a site, that they're not going to bear responsibility for it. That's relative to what can be applied. Uh, the whole separate conversation on the other side that Alec has started to talk about is, okay, if you have applied something already or what you're going to apply in the future, you need to know what's in that because there may be liability exposure on the snow side and certainly on the landscape side if what is in, in that product then impacts the groundwater, uh, the soil, and there may be remediation exposure and costs associated with that. And those are going to be far above and beyond what we see costs and exposure on some of these slip and trip and fall claims, workers' comp claims. It's, it's a different level as historically most of these statutes have been written. Fantastic. Alec and Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. This is obviously a developing issue and that uh, one that we'll be revisiting again in the future and most likely before as we prepare for the next winter, um, these things start to build up again. And and likewise, I know you guys are tracking that there are a lot of uh, studies being done at the state level about how um, rock salt and ice melt products are impacting waterways. So there will be news on this coming out, I'm sure, in the near future. So I'll be happy to have you back to discuss the implications of that studies, what are what the snow and ice management community needs to know. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you.